I'd like to tell you a story about hide and seek. Names have changed and details have been changed to protect the guilty. But the general facts of what I'm about to tell you are true as far as I can recall. When I was a kid, I did what many kids do. I was playing hide and seek with some friends and we were running around the house, we were having fun. There's something about hide and seek that gets the adrenaline really going, whether you're the one who's looking for the, for the best and the most undiscoverable hiding place or whether you're the seeker who's on the scent like, like a bloodhound on the trail of a fugitive. It's all very exciting. And so I was playing with these friends of mine and we were playing the game and eventually everyone got found, which is the point of the game. But what I didn't know during the game was that something scandalous had taken place. And I heard about it afterwards from one of my friends. Again, uh, the details have been obscured to protect the uh, hide-and-seekers. But I heard that during the game, she went and hid in the bathtub slash shower and pulled the curtain shut. And she crouched there and she hid and she waited and waited. So far, so, no go- so, far, so good. No one had found her. Then all of a sudden, she heard the bathroom door open and someone come in. And I think that she assumed that... The game was up and that she was found, but the curtain stayed in place. She was not yet found, but she also realized that that person hadn't left the room. And if I was her, these are the kinds of thoughts that would be going through my head at that moment. I'm playing hide and seek and I'm hiding in the bathtub slash shower. Someone is in the bathroom with me, but it doesn't appear that they're too focused on finding me, which means that playing hide and seek isn't first and foremost on their mind which means they must be in the bathroom for another reason. And if I was here, I'd have paused and then repeated that last phrase to myself, um, they must be in this bathroom for another reason. And what proceeded to happen was that this other person with no idea that there was someone else in the bathroom, safe and secure in the knowledge that he was alone in the most private of rooms, proceeded to do what people generally do when they go into the bathroom. He went to the loo. Now think about it. If you were the person hiding behind the, sh- hiding behind the shadow, sh- shower curtain, playing hide-and-seek, what would you do at that moment? Would you stand there quietly waiting until the bathroom user left? Or would you politely cough and alert them to your presence? Or would you do something else? Let's take a minute now to turn to our neighbor and discuss that very thing. If you were in that situation, in the, in the shower-slash-bathtub, what would you do? You have about one minute to uh, share your thoughts. Okay, so... Now we've learned a lot about our neighbor, which is great. Maybe, maybe you've been married to them for years and years, but this was one piece of information that you did not know up until that moment in time. Uh, and maybe you had no idea who the person is next to you, and now you know way more about them than you actually wish you had. So uh, either way. So last week, um, the Israelites crossed the Jordan River, and before God allowed them to move on, he asked them to stop. He wanted 
them to back up in order to move on. And he reminded them of his faithfulness through the rite of circumcision, that they were in a covenant with him, that he was their God and they were his people. And that place, as we found out last week, was amazingly called Foreskin Hill because of the sheer number of men that were circumcised at that moment in time. And then God also reminded them of his salvation through observing the Passover Uh, And both circumcision and Passover point forward towards Jesus Christ because he was the one who was cut off for us um, and he was so that we could enjoy this covenant relationship with God. And he was also the one who was the Passover lamb who bore our sins and took the punishment that we deserve so that we're freed from having to face God in his perfection in our natural state as sinners. And so only after the Israelites had been reminded of God's faithfulness and God's salvation that they were ready to move on. Now, I'm, we're, we're looking at Joshua chapter 6, and I'm actually going to split this message up into two parts. Uh, this Sunday, right, right now, we're going to look at the main narrative of Joshua chapter 6. And the main thrust of today's message is don't hide from God, seek him. And next week, we're going to address some of the concerns that, w- that we may get from reading Joshua chapter 6, uh, specifically vo- focusing in on verse 21 through 27, uh, because I don't want to ignore the questions that may be raised as we're reading through this, but neither do I want us to get kind of sidetracked this morning from the main thrust of the message. So as you read verse 21, if this troubles you, which verse 21 says this, they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. So if that troubles you, then I encourage you to come back next week uh, where I'll attempt to shed some light on these verses. Uh, Remember that one of the reasons why I'm preaching through the book of Joshua and why I'm doing this series called Ultimate Questions, uh, which is the last Sunday of, of every month, is because I'm absolutely convinced that we do not have to be either afraid or embarrassed of what's written in the Bible or of our Christian worldview. In fact, I believe that we should feel confidence and pride in it, not an unhealthy pride, not a pride in us, but a pride in the Word of God. And one of my goals through journeying through Joshua with you is for us to come out with a biblical and a clear view of God so that we can increase our commitment to serve him uh, and that we would understand that he's the one true God, that he's not just a, a merely polite and nice God like we sometimes like to think he is. So I'm, so I'm not avoiding the tougher parts of Joshua 6 today. I'm going to address them more in next week's Ultimate Questions message. So Joshua 5 ends, uh, verse 13... Joshua 5 ends with Joshua meeting the commander of the Lord's armies who gives Joshua the battle plan. And God first promises to him that Jericho is already given into his hands. And then Joshua tells him how this is actually going to take place. He gives Joshua the battle plan. And the battle plan is that there isn't any battle plan. Instead, there's a bunch of walking, processing, and a whole bunch of silence with some fancy trumpet playing going on in between. That is the battle plan, and it's a ludicrous plan. It's an embarrassing plan, and it's, I think, it's a plan that I think God gave to him specifically because um, it was as far from a solid 
plan for battle as you could actually possibly get, which meant that Joshua and his army would have to rely on God and not on their own strength. They, they, they were to be primarily observers of what God was going to do, and in the process, they were going to look pretty daft. They were going to look pretty silly as they followed God, as they obeyed him. So in short, what this plan that was, this battle plan that was no battle plan was to loop the city once a day for six days. Uh, and this procession was comprised of the forward guard, along with seven priests who were blowing seven's ramhorn trumpets, followed by the Ark of the Covenant, which we, which we heard about recently was 900 meters in front of them. Now it's in the midst of them. And then it's followed by a rear guard. That was the procession that was to loop the city of Jericho. And after six days of looping the city once, they are told on the seventh day to loop the city seven times. Uh, so you have seven priests with seven trumpets looping the city seven times on the seventh day. And seven is the number of completeness, of wholeness. And number seven means that God is going to be doing his stuff, not people doing their stuff. And other than the sound of the trumpets blowing, the people are not to say a word, not to utter one sound until Joshua says. So it's this eerily silent procession with the exception of a bunch of priests at the front who are blowing trumpets and then in verse 15 of chapter 6 they've just looped the city seven times and they're all getting excited and ready especially all the extroverts who've had to keep silent for six whole days and not say a word and then Joshua says okay get ready to shout but wait hold on there's something else I have to tell you and then he tells the Israelites not to steal anything that God is giving them the victory, so the spoil from the battle that is not a battle actually belongs to him. And then the people shout, the trumpets are blown, and then the walls of the city fall down flat. The battle is over. So our sermon here today is all about hide and seek, and we're looking at two groups of folks, two groups of people, those who are hiding from God and those who are seeking him. And the Canaanites were holed up in their fortress walls hiding from God, whereas the Israelites had just reminded themselves of God's salvation and they were actively seeking him. They were chasing after him. They were following him. Like like we heard a couple of weeks ago, they were following 900 meters behind the presence of God himself, the Ark of the Covenant, as they crossed over the Jordan River. And now the presence of God is right in the midst of them. And so as we look at these two groups of people, those who are seeking God and those who are hiding from him, I hope that what each of us are doing is holding the mirror up to our own lives and asking, which am I? Because we all assume that we're the Israelites, that we're those who are seeking God and that we're doing quite well. But I would be surprised if some of us here aren't actually more like the Canaanites, who are holed up in our fortress, who are wallowing in our sin, who are determined not to let God anywhere near us. And as we're sat here in our pews, or even standing on the platform, um, we could very well look like those who are seeking God. Uh, we've, we've worked on our poker face for Sunday morning, and it's just right. It's got some some commitment there, some worship thrown in there with just a little bit of repentance so that people don't get suspicious of how full of the Lord we are. We've worked on that face and it's just so. Meanwhile, we're hiding. We're in a self-imposed siege. We are depending on our own dwindling resources. 
we are self-sufficient. But God is just outside our city walls, and we're hoping that he stays there, that he, he doesn't come too close. We're hoping that he respects our bubble, that he respects our privacy. And anyways, what right does God have to invade our space? Yes, we aren't perfect, and you may even call us sinners, but we're not hurting anyone. At least we're not hurting anyone that much. And what happens in the privacy of our walled city stays in the privacy of our walled city because faith and religion are very intensely personal things. At least that's what we think. So we reason as long as God looks after his stuff, which is mainly what happens on Sundays between the hours of 10 and 12, and then he leaves me to look after my stuff, which takes place between 12 or 1 on Sunday afternoon and 9.59 the following Sunday, As long as we each respect our zones, we should be okay. You see, we like to treat God like he's a parent with maybe visitation rights of just a couple of hours a week, and even then under supervision. But Joshua chapter 6 shows that God is far from being a a person with, with parental visitation rights. He's a sovereign king with supreme rights. Let's turn to Joshua chapter 5 verse 1, then Joshua 6 verse 1, uh, and I would encourage you, you to look in the Bible so that you know that I'm not making up what I'm saying. So Joshua 5 verse 1 says this, so when, or Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had courage to face the Israelites. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went in and no one came out. So let's first look at the hiders. This moment of reckoning had been coming for a long time for the Canaanites and for the Amorites. So if we track back 400 years to where God first made made a covenant with Abraham, we read in Genesis 15 verse 16 that after 400 years, Abraham's descendants, also known as the Israelites, would come back into this land, into Canaan, to live there. And God explains why they have to wait 400 years by saying this in Genesis 15 verse 16, for the sins of the Amorites have not reached its full measure. Oh, sorry, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure, which means that his grace was still extended to those living in this land. There was still hope. This this line that God had created to say that enough was enough had not yet been reached. God is telling those who live in the land of Canaan, I'm watching you. And he's posted a surveillance team in the area who are watching and who are logging everything that they see. And he does this for 400 years. Um, And and what we find out when Abraham and Lot first move into the area is that things are already bad. Because these these residents of this area are described as being wicked and sinning sinning greatly against the Lord. So even back then, things were really, really bad. And And then the Bible also says that... 
the outcry is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is so bad as the outcry that has, has reached me. So, you know, this really powerful language is used there that God's heard these stories and he goes down to check out if the stories, if the rumors are actually true. And what this is saying is that there is an outcry against those who are living in the area. It's, it's as if someone has made a petition and loads of people have signed it, signed it, letters of outrage have been sent into heaven's office, and things actually get so bad back then in the time of Abraham and Lot that God wipes these cities off the face of the earth. And so what this shows us is that only God knows when this point is reached. But according to the Bible, that point, that line, when enough is enough, exists. As we read in the book of, of Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, uh, God, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. So more than 400 years have, have gone by since the time of Abraham and Lot. And it seems like things have gone from bad to worse to worse. And the Canaanites haven't learned a thing. And so just as it, as it was for these cities back then, now it's this moment for Jericho itself. And so Joshua chapter 6 is the fulfillment of that prophecy back in Genesis 15 that the sin of the Amorites has now reached its full measure. This is this moment, and we don't know exactly what that means, but we do know that it means that God was patient and he was waiting. And we know, and we know from the case of Nineveh that if a city repents, that God will turn back from his plans of judgment if the people are repentant. And we know that there is grace, and we know that the people living in the land of Canaan would have been aware of Abraham and Lot. Uh, it is likely that they would have heard of, this, of the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that these stories would have been passed down f- from one generation on to another. And this reminds me of 1 Peter chapter 3 verse, 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9, which says this, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, 400 years. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So we read in the Bible, as we look at the whole counsel of Scripture, we realize that God is patient, that it's his desire that everyone, everyone repents. This is his desire for all humans everywhere, yet he cannot ignore sin. And there comes a time when God says, enough is enough, and judgment comes. And so we have the Canaanites hiding. We know that they know about God. We know that they know about his reputation. We know that the word on the street in Jericho itself is that God is coming. And as a result, the people are afraid. And as we heard from Rahab back in uh, Joshua chapter 2, um, the people in, in Jericho acknowledge that God is the one true God in heaven above and on the earth below. And they know that he dried up the Red Sea. And now the same thing has just happened in front of them in spitting distance of their own city. They know that he's supremely powerful. These are all the things that, that the citizens of Jericho know. And what is their response? Their response is to lock themselves up. They, you know, they, you know, they don't parlay. They don't bring out the, the, the white flag. They just hide themselves within their own walls. They are the hiders. And is that any different from you and me? You know about God. 
You've heard these stories. You know that he's powerful. You've, you've heard what he has done. People that you trust have said, explained to you how God has worked in their life, but it makes no practical change in your life. Have you heard the stories and in your heart of hearts, you know that it's true, but you're still sitting beside, uh, sitting behind your thick walls, hoping that God knows well enough to leave you alone. Has your wickedness reached its full measure yet? And my words to you are, don't, don't hide from God. Seek him. When I was at university, I was a bit of a pig. And that's an understatement. My parents lived 45 minutes away. And I remember that my parents would occasionally make that journey to come to Cardiff to spend some time with me. And in Wales, 45 minutes is a significant amount of traveling time. You could cover a fair distance of the country in 45 minutes. So they wouldn't have necessarily visit me that often because 45 minutes, you know, it's, it's a ways to go. Um, but, when they, but when they did come, I knew what to expect. I should have tidied up knowing that they would be on my doorstep very shortly. But I was also comfortable in my own squalor. My house and my room resembled a pigsty more than it did the living space of civilized folks. The pots and pans would be all over the kitchen with baked beans encrusted around the edge and there would be scummy water left in the sink. Uh, There would be ashtrays strewn all over the floor and used cigarette butts here and there and and empty beer cans would be on the armrests of the chairs and my rolly cigarette papers would be jammed down the side of the sofa and the carpet hadn't been vacuumed in ages and my room was a whole other level of foulness. I know that my fingers were stained yellow with nicotine and my clothes probably stank of the night before. You see, there was something in me that gloried in this general state of lack of hygiene. And I thought I was being authentic. Uh, I told myself that I'd escaped the rat race. Uh, I told myself that I was living some kind of a bohemian ideal and I didn't care about all the trappings of life. And in fact, one of the only things that I actually cared about was that people realized how much, how little I cared about stuff. That was the only thing that I cared about. So I'd know that my parents were coming over. I wasn't stupid, and even though we didn't have smartphones back then, I didn't even have a phone, I did have an actual watch on my wrist, and I could tell the time, and I knew their standards. I'd been raised by them for 18 years, and I knew that my mum liked vacuuming the stairs and washing the curtains, and my dad would clean the car every week. And I knew that our garden back at home was one of the most consistently lovely gardens I'd ever seen. I knew all this. I knew my parents' standards, and I chose to welcome them into the rat hole of my house. My parents were on their way, and I was choosing to stay in my mess. And is this you? Are you aware that God is coming, and are are you content to just stay in your mess? Don't hide from God. Seek him. So we've met the hiders. Now let's have a little look at the seekers. Let's turn to verse 8 of Joshua chapter 6, which says this. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant Followed them, the armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but God had commanded the army, Do not give a war cry, and do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. 
So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the army returned to the camp and spent the night there. He, he got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpet. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. Now, since we've been focusing on the Israelites so much for the past few Sundays, let me just draw out one or two things that we can live out, that we can learn from what we read here here in this chapter. First of all, the seeker is identified as someone who worships God. When Joshua encounters the commander of the Lord's army at the end of chapter 5, what is his response? His response is to fall face down in reverence. And, And what does he stammer out as he's lying there on the floor? He stammers out this, what message does my Lord have for his servant? So, We have Samuel, who said, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. We have Isaiah, who said, here I am, send send me when encountering God. And then we have Joshua, who says, what message do you have for me? And so what the seeker realizes as he's worshiping God is that God is the one who calls the shots. And then after worshiping, the seeker is one who is obedient No matter how little or how much the instructions make sense, the seeker obeys. When God says, change job or have a coffee with your neighbor or leave everything that you have and go learn the language of an unreached people group so that you can tell them about me, the seeker says, okay. So when God says, walk around the walls of the city in silence for six days, the seeker obeys. And I'm sure that Joshua already had his plan sorted out. I'm sure that he'd spent hours in meetings with, you know, his generals, and they'd planned out the strategy of how to take the city of Jericho with minimal loss of life. But then God unveils his plans, and Joshua had to go back to the leaders of the Israelites and say, actually, things have changed just a little bit. And then he had to explain to them that their battle plan was to have no actual battle plan. Instead, it was a trust God plan. And on a human level, this trust God plan did not make any sense, which is exactly, as I said, why God made this plan in the first place. Because God doesn't invite us to a life that makes sense. The life of faith is not a life that makes sense. When David brings five stones into battle against a giant, it doesn't make sense. When Gideon cuts down his army from, from 30,000 down to 300, it doesn't make sense. When Joseph is locked in jail for a number of years, it doesn't make sense. When Mary, a teenage girl, is made pregnant by the Holy Spirit, it doesn't make sense. When Peter walks on water, it doesn't make sense. When Jesus dies a criminal's death on the cross, it doesn't make sense. The church being scattered just after it got invented... It doesn't make sense, but this is the life of faith that God has called us to. And because the seeker is seeking after God, nothing else matters. There is a passion in in chasing after God that renders everything else relatively meaningless. 
When, when God has your gaze and when you're transfixed on him and you can feel his call and his unction and his power moving through you and he's calling you and he's leading you, the foolish thing would be to stay or to hide. And so Joshua was a seeker and he led a nation of seekers. They chased after God and they pursued him. God was their everything. So are you seeking God? Are you actively pursuing him? When is the last time that you obeyed God at the risk of appearing foolish? When is the last time that that you laid aside your own plans and said, okay, God, have thine own way. Don't hide from God. Seek him. Here's a sample of some of the questions which we're going to be looking at this week in, in our grow groups. Who do you think the commander of the Lord's army was at the end of chapter 5? And when the commander of the Lord said neither, when Joshua asked him if he was for him or the Israelites, what did that mean? Um, How do you think Rahab's accommodation was spared when the walls fell? How might this actually have taken place? And here's another question which we'll be talking about in, in our grow groups. Are you a seeker of God or a hider from God? What evidence do you have um, to actually back up your answer? And then read Joshua 6, verse 21. What questions do you have as you read this verse? You know, what we find out is that even before the battle that wasn't a battle, Joshua had to learn something. At the end of chapter 5, when Joshua encounters the commander of the Lord's army, Joshua says this to him. He says, are you for us or for our enemies? And, and what is the response from this commander of the Lord's army? He says, neither. But as commander of the Lord's army, I have now come. So what this commander of the Lord's army is saying is that Joshua is asking the wrong thing. We don't get to ask God, are you on my side? Instead, God gets to ask us, are you on my side? You see, the issue isn't whether God was for Joshua or not. The issue was whether Joshua was for God. Because nothing that we read in the book of Joshua, in in the chapter 6 of of the book of Joshua, is about humans working out their own agenda. It's all about God working out his own agenda. And the nature of the hider is that she wants God to give her exactly what she wants. She wants a God who will leave her alone, who is available at her, 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 her beck and call. That's the nature of the hider. But the seeker is someone who says, I want you, God. I will, I will chase after you. And the seeker says, I am for you, God, not are you for us. So there are the hiders and the seekers, and things didn't go very well for the hiders. They locked themselves in, and they depended on their own resources. This was a culture that had learned how to trust in itself itself, and to go its own way. These were people who had signed their own fate. This was the moment when the sin had reached its full measure, when God could no longer ignore the cries that were going up to heaven against these Canaanites, and God acted in a, in a decisive way. Judgment comes and it is complete. Jericho no longer exists. But the good news, and there is some really good news in the midst of all this, is that hiders can become seekers. Those who are hiding from God out of shame or who are enjoying their sinful lifestyle way too much to change can actually change. It's possible that the Jerichoites could have stopped before their sin reached its full measure. How do I know this? Because of Rahab. 
She is someone who lived in that city, who transformed from being a hider to a seeker. She, she, she had fruit in keeping with repentance. She placed her trust in God, and she was saved. She heard the reports of God, just like everyone else did. But she did something about it. She changed her allegiance from serving the local gods to serving the one true God. She stopped hiding from God, and instead, she sought him out. She's the one who proves that hiders can become seekers. Verse, verse, verse 26 says she lives among the Israelites even until this day. She changed her fate, but it takes faith to turn from a hider into a seeker. It takes courage to reject the comfort of what is known and to venture out in faith. It takes feeling sick to the pit of your stomach of knowing how things are and knowing that it cannot go on like this anymore. It takes calling on the name of the Lord. It takes repentance. It takes turning your back on what you've known and how you've learned how to cope. It takes turning to and seeking a God who's seeking you anyways. It means finding a God who found you first. Matthew chapter 7 says this, Ask and, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And Rahab was someone who knocked on the door and the door was opened to her. She was a prostitute in a nation of deeply, deeply sinful people. And she's here in the Bible to show you that a hider can become a seeker. You can be a 21st century Rahab regardless of what's happening in your life right now. But just like the people of Jericho found out, this deal had a time limit on this. One day on this earth, our sin will reach its full measure and then God will come and then it will be way too late. You cannot hide from God forever. So we have to give up this idea that our thick walls are able to keep him out because to him they're just straw. Don't hide from God. Instead, seek him because the only way to to stop God finding you and breaking apart the structures that you've created to keep him out is to seek him. It's rather counterintuitive, but that's what we read in the Bible. It's much, much better to know God as faithful savior than as the breaker of walls. And that means leaving those walls and seeking him. It's the only way, and it's always been the only way. Hiding from God is the most futile thing that you can ever do, but seeking God is the most fruitful thing that you can ever do. We read in the Bible, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. We're going to end our service today by creating space for us to do a bit of a heart check, to to let the Holy Spirit um, look inside us, to search our hearts, our motives, our memories, our intentions and to allow God to show us where we're hiding from him and where we're seeking him. Remember, it's not about you asking God, are you for me? It's about God asking you, are you for me? So don't come into this time now um, having already, already knowing which camp you're in. If you're a hider or a seeker, allow God to speak to you in the quietness to maybe convict you where, where it's needed and to reassure you where it's needed. So we will have a song playing in the background and the words are going to be up on the screen. And after this, we will have some quiet worship music um, which will allow us to have this, this, this 
the space which we need. So, so feel free to come kneel at the altar. Feel free to stay where, where you are. If God is moving you to go pray with someone, then listen to the Spirit and respond. And just ask them, is it okay if I pray with you? If they say yes, great. If they just want that time alone with the Lord, then let them. On Friday night, I told Meredith that I would be preaching on playing hide-and-seek with God on Sunday. And do you know what Meredith's words were to me? She said this, You can't hide from God, but you can seek Him. And I think that that just about sums up the entire message. You can't hide from God, but you can seek Him. And if a 10-year-old is able to get that, then I think that you're able to get it too.